Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you that it is a, a divine, inspired, living, breathing word of God that ministers to our hearts today just as much as it did 2,000 years ago. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as you minister to us through your word, that we'd have receptive hearts. That, Father God, we would listen to what your spirit wants to minister to each one of us this morning. And I pray, Lord, again, that we'd be in desperation for you, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, Lord willing, we're going to go from verse 27 through the end of the chapter. If we run out of time, we run out of time. Last week, we looked at the attributes of a healthy church. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go over that. There are tapes available over there, and they're free, so help yourself. And it covers the first uh, 26 verses of Luke chapter 9. And if you ever, ever wanted to know what are the attributes, what are the marks of a healthy church in the kingdom of God, we looked at that last week. Now this morning, I want to talk to you, and I titled this message this morning, Truth. Because that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the truth about the kingdom of God. We're going to look at the true source of power. We're going to look about, at the truth about why Jesus came to earth. We're going to look at true greatness. We're going to look at the world's rejection of the truth. And then lastly, and again, time willing, we're going to look at the true cost of what it means to really follow Jesus. So let's begin looking in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. And we're going to look at the truth about the kingdom of God as we look at the, when Jesus was transfigured before the apostles. So again, the truth, the transfiguration or the glory of Jesus being revealed. Look at verse 27. It says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. But I I tell you truly. In other uh, sections it's it's translated, Assuredly I say to you. It's a a statement that's only spoken by Jesus anywhere in the Bible. And whenever he says it, he's about to share something extremely important. You know, when the truth... Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It says, truly I say unto you, we need to pay attention. Amen? And he said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this has been interpreted several ways. One, some believe that he was speaking of his resurrection. Others believe he was speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Others believe that he was talking about the spreading of the church. But you know what? Whenever you look at the Bible, always look at it in its context. And in the context here, I believe it's very clear that what he's speaking about is his transfiguration. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. And it's awesome to me to know, again, that God is faithful and that God reveals himself to man, those who draw near to him. We're going to see a picture of that. He's going to give a clear picture of the kingdom of God as he's glorified and, again, fulfilling the truth of both the law and the prophets. Look at verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, eight days after he said that there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, they go up onto the mountain. Again, that's why I believe that's what he was speaking about. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, it's interesting to me that if there are three more impetuous guys in the twelve, I don't know how it could be. Three guys who, who maybe needed more of the Lord's time. Because God would use them mightily eventually, but right now these are the guys that, that, that are ready uh, fire aim. You know, these are the kind of guys we're going to see later on in the text that they speak first and think about what they're saying next. But it's interesting to me that the Lord had a fourfold ministry. He ministered to the crowd. And to the crowd, He would speak in parables. And He would reveal things in in a light way where those who were truly hungry could draw nearer to God. But then He had the 70 among the crowd, the disciples. And to them, He revealed deeper truths. But within the 70, He had the 12, the apostles, who He ate with, who He lived with, who He walked with, who He ministered to more in depth. But within that 12, He had the three, Peter, James, and John. And these are the men that when Jesus would ascend to the Father, that He would leave the ministry with. And Peter, James, and John, this inner circle, are often seen to be alone with Jesus. And I can think of no greater place to be than to be alone with Jesus. Amen? So often, I think one of the problems in the church today, one of the reasons we struggle in our walk, is we don't spend any time alone with Jesus. We wake up in the morning to the, you know, the alarm clock goes off and music's playing, and we, we got noise and stuff from the time we wake up till the moment we go to sleep, and we never have any quiet time alone with the Lord. But the Lord takes them up onto the mountain to pray. And what's awesome to me is that what he revealed to these men in preparation for leaving the ministry in their hand. When Jesus raised uh, Jeru's daughter from the dead a few weeks back, who was there with them? Peter, James, and John. All the other apostles and everybody else was outside, but Peter, James, and John were there. They saw Jesus' victory over death. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane later, when Jesus is praying about the coming suffering, submitting unto death, who's there with Him? Peter, James, and John. When the Lord is on the Mount of Transfiguration this morning, we're going to see that who's there with Him as He reveals His glorified body. It's Peter, James, and John. But look what it says there. It says, Now it came to pass after eight days that they went up on the mountain to pray. When did the Lord reveal Himself to them? When they went up on the mountain to pray. How many of you have ever been on a retreat before? Of any kind? Men's retreat, women's retreat, couples retreat? You know what? I've never been to a retreat in my life where I came home and said, Oh, that was weak. That's never happened. And you know what? It's not always because the speaker's great or whatever it might be. But you know what? When you take time and you go spend time alone with the Lord, away from you know, work and all the cares of this world, and you spend time alone with God, away and, and time dedicated to Him, God always does something awesome. And here we see Peter, James, and John, and the Lord went up on the mountain with them to pray. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is God, and yet He spent time alone with the Father? He and the Father are one, and yet He spent time alone with the Lord. One of the keys to the kingdom of God is having a prayer-filled life. And again, he goes up onto the high mountain, verse 29. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Now, it's interesting, again, it was during the time that he prayed that he was transfigured. Now, the word is not used here, transfigured. It says altered in this text. But in the other two companion texts, the word is transfigured. And it's where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's a change where the outside reflects what's on the inside. And you know what? When Jesus veiled Himself as He was on the earth, but you know what? When He revealed just a glimpse of His glory as we're about to see, He shined brightly. And you know what? He is the great and glorious God. And you know what? Unless, unless God veiled Himself from us, we could not be in His presence in any way, shape, or form. It's a change that comes from the inside out. It's a reflection of, of, of the inside. You know, it's interesting to note that as followers of Christ, we too, should, we too should be undergoing a transformation. We too should have an inside-out change in our lives. We too should be reflecting on the outside the change that's happened with us on the inside. The Bible says, by your fruit they shall know you. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and kindness and peace and patience and long-suffering. And these are reflections of an inward change. Prayer, remember again that prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And as the Lord went to pray, it was then that He was transformed. And if you want to be transformed and you want to become more like Jesus, we need to pray. Amen? We need to spend time in His presence. It's interesting that you become like the people you hang out with. Have you ever noticed that? I noticed that some of the people that hang out together, you know, they dress alike, they talk alike. I was a high school pastor for many, many years, and you can just tell, oh, there's the jocks, and there's the surfers, and there's the socias, and there's the... Pre you know, everybody, you know, they all dress alike, they do things alike, and you end up being like the people you hang out with. It's just reality. And you know what? If you want to be like Jesus, you need to hang out with Jesus. Amen? You need to spend time with Him. Not just know about Him, but know Him in an intimate and a personal way. And here Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and as he's praying, he's transformed right before their eyes. It says his robe became white and glistening. Literally, the word means bright like lightning. The divine glory emanating from Jesus made His clothes radiate with brilliant white light. It's interesting that quite often in the Bible, light is associated with God's visible presence. It says in Psalm 104, O, o Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover Yourself with light as with a garment. Who stretch out Your hands like a curtain. In Daniel 7.9 it says, The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His throne was as a fiery flame. In Revelation 21 it says, The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. When we get to heaven, we will not need an S-U-N because we will have the S-O-N. Amen? We won't need the sun because we'll have the sun. And you know, it'll shine brightly and we won't need anything else outside of God to illuminate heaven because He alone will illuminate it. And here we're going to see that Peter, James, and John, as they draw near to God, they're going to get a glimpse of His glory. And if you want to see God's glory in your life, you need to draw near to Him. Not, again, knowing about Him, but knowing Him in an intimate and a personal way. Remember what happened to Moses when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he spent time near to God. What happened when he came down? It says in, that he had to veil his face because he was glowing in the dark for Jesus. He was such a reflection that his face was shining so brightly that people couldn't stand to look at him. And you know what? Shouldn't we be glowing in the dark for Jesus? Amen? If we draw near to him, you will be. People say, what's different about you? And you can say, I've been with Jesus. 
And that's exactly what's happened in the life of Moses. Jesus is God. He's the Creator. He's the one that spoke and said, let there be light. And we're going to see here that He is a, a bright light shining brightly in front of them. And it says, And behold, two men, verse 30, talked with Him, who were Moses and Elijah. Now let me ask you a question. What had happened to Moses and Elijah many, many, many years earlier? Moses died and Elijah was taken up into heaven. Now it's interesting, the Bible says very clearly that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You notice that they're not sleeping. There's no such thing as soul sleep, like some people might teach you. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As Christians, we close our eyes on earth and we open them up in heaven. It's going to be an instantaneous transformation and I'll tell you what, I can't wait. Amen? I'm excited. I can't wait to go to heaven. People fear death, I don't. You know why? Because I know that it, for a Christian, it only gets better. If you're an unbeliever, it only gets worse. Amen? But for a Christian, it gets way, way better. And, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we see very clearly here that here's the Lord, and speaking to Him are two dead men from the world's perspective. Moses and Elijah. Now, why is it Moses and Elijah? Let me tell you why. Moses represented the law. Moses was the one that went up on Mount Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments, and he was a representation of the law. And then Elijah is a representation of the prophets. You know, prior to the writing of the New Testament, the Bible was known basically as the law and the prophets. The first five books of the Bible were referred to as the law, and the rest of the Old Testament was the major and minor prophets. But the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Here's Moses, and the law pointed to Jesus. And here's Elijah, and the prophets pointed to Jesus. They didn't point to Muhammad. They didn't point to Buddha. They didn't point to any other dead gods. They pointed to Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. And here Jesus is in His transformed body, and appearing with Him are Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine being on that mountain that morning? Or that evening, exactly. And you went up there, and can you imagine, not only does the Lord reveal Himself, but there's Moses and Elijah standing there and talking with Him. But here's the interesting part. Moses and Elijah were there, but we're going to find in just a moment that what are the apostles doing? What do the apostles typically do when God's doing awesome stuff? What are they usually doing? They're sleeping, and we're going to find out they're sleeping again. Now, it's interesting to me that in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus appeared to the the two apostles or disciples as they were walking along the road after His resurrection, it says He reasoned to them from all of the law and the prophets according to Himself. He pointed to Himself from the law and the prophets. And here, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah had been pointing to. Verse 31, "...who appeared in glory and spoke of His decease, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." So as Moses and Elijah were there, what were they talking to Jesus about? They were talking about the fact that he was going to die. The word deceased there is is where we get the word exodus or departure. And Jesus was going to exit this physical life and depart to heaven. He was going to face death and die in our place that we might have eternal life. And again, as a Christian, death is not a, a place of torment but it's an exodus. It's a departure from the temporal into the eternal. Amen? And that's what Jesus was talking to them about. And contrary to the the apostles' lack of understanding, Christ's suffering and death would not prevent God from establishing His kingdom, but rather solving solving the world's problem through the cross. And it says here, at Jerusalem. Why was He talking to them about going to Jerusalem? Because that's where Jesus would be crucified. He was speaking to them about His death, His death was going to be on the cross at Jerusalem. You know what? Our God is sovereign. And the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the Lamb that was slain. He was slain and He was going to the cross even before the world was created. And He knew that He was going there and He did it out of His love for us. Moses had died and been buried, but Elijah had been raptured to heaven. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus returns, He will raise the bodies of those who have died and he will rapture the church prior to that. So it's interesting that here's Elijah who had never tasted death. I believe a picture of the church that will be raptured before the second coming of Christ. And Moses who had died, a picture of those who've gone before in death. Both Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. And it's awesome to know that again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 32, But Peter and those with them were heavy with sleep. 
Can you imagine? How tired must you be to miss this? I mean, what is up? I mean, how tired do you got to be when, when Jesus Christ is being made manifest and he's, he's glowing in the dark, he's shining bright as lightning, right? I mean, you got to be napping hard, right? And here's Moses and Elijah next to him, and you're asleep. Wow. Hello? And again, Peter, James, and John, a lot of times people think they're the ones close. I think they're the ones that needed the most lessons. They needed the most instruction. They're napping all the time. But you know what? When I was studying this last night, I felt convicted myself that, you know what, as a church, I believe that we're sleepwalking often through Christianity. Even in my own life, there's times when, you know what, I realize that, man, Lord, I need to be doing more. Lord, I need, I need to be filled more with your Spirit. I need to be more focused on you. Lord, how many things have you done right before my eyes that I've missed? How many divine appointments have you put in my path that I've been too busy, or I've been napping, or I've been focused on the world that I've missed out on your glory? And here we, so when we look at Peter, James, and John, and we want to get after them, well, you know what, in a lot of ways we should be identifying with them, because we do the same thing. And you know what, here they are, and they're napping, blows my mind, heavy with sleep, physically weary, and again, almost missed, completely missed the divine revelation. It says there in verse 32, And when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men who stood with Him. Then it happened, as they were departing from Him, and that's, that's Elijah and Moses departing, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what He said. Now here's Peter, ready, fire, aim, Right? I mean, he sees Jesus, he sees Elijah, and he says Moses. Now, it's interesting to me that just in the, previously in the chapter, the Lord had said to him, who do men say that I am? And he said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet to come. Who do you say that I am? He says, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, Peter, flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter, you get it. Very good, Peter. That's the right answer. Peter, yeah, that's the right answer. Look at the other apostles. That's right, I got it. You guys did, and you were sleeping. You know, and here's the reality, though. We find out that Peter doesn't really get it. Why? Because he says, let's make a tabernacle, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. You know what? We don't put anybody on the same plane with Jesus Christ. Amen? And he said, you know what? Let's build tabernacles. Let's, let's hang out here. Let's stay in that place. And so here they are, and they're looking and seeing what is happening, and it it blows my mind that they say, oh, it's good to be here. Let's build tabernacles. Let's camp out here with Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And you know what? In some ways I understand that. You know, you see the awesome move of God, and sometimes we just want to stay there. But at the same time, if we're truly going to walk with God, if we're going to see His glory on the mountaintop, we've also got to be prepared to go down into the valley and minister for him in places of difficulty as well. But Peter, not knowing what he said, he spoke often not knowing what he was saying, just like we do today. Peter, with his finite temporal understanding, wanted to make, make earthly tabernacles. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Elijah and Moses would want to hang out on earth? These guys are in heaven! You cannot build me a nice enough temple to get me to come back to this dung heap compared to heaven, amen? I mean, heaven, no weeping, no gnashing, perfect heaven, presence of God the Father. And you want to build a tabernacle for me? I don't think so. It'd be like if you lived in Pebble Beach and someone wanted to build you a shack in an alleyway somewhere. Dude, oh, thanks, I appreciate the sentiment, but not interested. And the same is true with these guys. So he made two mistakes. He was trying to bring heaven low and he was trying to bring Jesus to equal or make them equal with the Lord. And we should never, ever, ever make anyone equal with God. That's why we don't pray to the saints. Amen? Who are the saints today? You. You're a saint. Did you know that? Saint means set apart one. You know, you're either a saint or an ain't. Amen? Either you're born again or you're not. And if you're born again, you're a saint. And you are one of His kids. And so the reality is that saints are not dead, old dead people who, you know, who did a bunch of stuff and now they build statues to them and the statues cry. That's not a saint. A saint is those of us who have followed Jesus Christ, who have been adopted into His family, who have become His children. That's who the saints are. And that's us. And so it's interesting, again, that these guys were wanting to honor the law and the prophets equally with Jesus. We are not to seek after the law or to seek after the prophets the way that we seek after Jesus. Amen? 
What does the law do? It points us to Jesus. What do the prophets do? They point us to Jesus. Who do we seek after? We seek after Jesus Christ alone. Amen? We don't try to keep the law to make God happy because you can't do it. And we don't try to follow after the prophets to make God happy because you can't do it. We try to seek and we desire to seek after Jesus Christ alone. Peter wanted to have heaven on earth. But the truth about the kingdom of God is that perfect and holy God veiled His glory by taking on human flesh. He came to a sinful earth to suffer and die in our place that we might inherit eternal life. Without Christ's earthly suffering, we could not taste eternal glory. True, true disciples of Christ will, will share both in His glory, but also in His suffering. Then it happened as they were departing from Him. And now verse 34 it says, while he, was, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were feel, fearful as they entered the cloud. Now this is interesting. Whenever you see a cloud, especially in the Old Testament, it's a representation of the presence of Almighty God. In Exodus 40, when they went into the tabernacle, and they created the tabernacle, the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God over it, would keep any other man from entering into it. No man could enter into it when the cloud was there. Because it was the presence of God, and men cannot enter into the very presence of Almighty God. In Second Chronicles, when the cloud filled the temple, the priest could not go in and minister in the temple. So it was no wonder they were fearful as they walked into this cloud. Here's Peter. James and John walking with the Lord into this cloud, the representation of the Shekinah glory or the presence of Almighty God. And it says, And a voice came out, verse 35, of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. Now remember, what's Peter doing? He's mouthing off. Peter's talking. Hey, Lord, i got a plan. Peter, Mr. I know evangelism, right? Peter, Mr. I've got it all figured out. you got to remember that Peter had just been rebuked by Jesus Days earlier. Remember when the Lord told him he must die? It's not in Luke's account, but it's in Matthew and it's in Mark. And he told him he was going to have to die. And what did Peter do? It says he grabbed the Lord and he pulled him aside and he rebuked him. He rebuked Jesus. Lord, no, wait a minute. Come here. Let, let me help you out. You need a little money. Let me instruct. And what did the Lord say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. So just to prove that Peter's an equal opportunity knucklehead, not only is he rebuked by Jesus, but now he's going to be rebuked by the Father. He gets up and he says, oh, i got a plan. Here's what we need to do. Let's build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. And in the midst of that, in the context of this text this morning, basically it says that the Lord interrupted him. As Peter's going on and espousing his plan, God the Father interrupts in verse 35 and says, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And let me give you the Dave interpretation of that, the paraphrase. Shut up, Peter. Pete, shut up. This is the Lord. Almighty God created the universe. Why don't you listen to Him? And you know what? We fall into the same trap. We start telling God how He ought to do things. Lord, here's what you need to do. Let me give you some... Pl- you know, hey, I've been to school. You know, I've got some degrees, Lord. I've got, I'm pretty sharp. I figured a few things out. Let me help you out, Lord. Here's what you need to do. And here's a good plan. Here's how you can go about it. And, you know, Lord, are you taking notes? I hope you're taking notes. Now, here's what I want you to do. And the Lord tells us, you know what? We need to come to Him with fear and trembling and say, Lord, what do you want to do? Lord, what is your will? What is your plan? How do I get aligned with you? And Peter's, oh yeah, let's build a tabernacle. Elijah, it must be great. Shut up, Peter. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. And you know what? That's an exhortation to each one of us. We need to listen to the Lord. Peter had taken the Lord aside and rebuked him, and and Jesus had rebuked Peter, and now we see God the Father rebuking him as well. Instead of telling God what we think, we ought to listen to His will. It says, now, I want to say this too. Notice that they went into the cloud, but before when they went into the cloud with fear and trembling, and this time they went into the cloud with with fear and trembling, previously, if they'd gone into that cloud, the presence of God, they would have been struck down dead. But you'll notice this time, as they went into the presence of the Father, they weren't struck down dead. Why is that? Because Jesus is with them. Amen? You know what? We can enter into the presence of the Father if Jesus Christ is with us. That's the only time that we can. That's the only thing that will make us worthy and acceptable before God the Father, is that we come before Him with God the Son. Verse 36, When the voice... When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. It's interesting that after God the Father had spoken, it says in the other uh, text, they saw Jesus 
only. You know what? If we listen to the voice of the Father, we're going to see Jesus only. Amen? When, when, if we listen to His voice and we're directed by Him, we will see nothing else but Jesus Christ. We will not see what the world wants. We will not be looking at other prophets or other men or other ways to get there. We'll see Jesus only. And that's the best place to have our focus. Because the answer to man's desperate need cannot be found through keeping the law or following the prophets. Moses was gone. The law was gone. Elijah was gone. The prophets were gone. Why? Because the answer for what ails man is not in the law. It's not in the prophets. It's in Jesus only. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. He didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. We still look at the law as pointing to Christ. But the law does not save us. The prophets do not save us. Jesus alone. The answer to salvation, the truth about the kingdom of God, is Jesus alone. Now we're going to move on after looking at the truth about the kingdom of God, which is Christ alone, and Him only we can be saved. And now we're going to look at the true source of power as Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. Look at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met Him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried, cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. You know what? Here, the, here Jesus is in the presence of the Father. He's been transformed or transfigured in front of the apostles. They come down from this awesome moment. They've been in the cloud, the presence of God. And as soon as they come down, what's waiting for them? The devil. Right? Demon possessed. And you know what? It's amazing to me that you know, you'll go spend quiet time alone with the Lord and you'll go away on a retreat and sure enough, as soon as you get back, what's waiting for you? All hell has broken loose in a sense. Amen? You come home and man, oh, there's disaster at home. The kids are falling. It's just amazing. Why? Because the enemy wants to rob you of what God has ministered to your heart. And the same thing is happening here. They come down from the mountain. Can you imagine the spiritual high in a sense that they were on, as soon as they walk down, the multitude is waiting. And they're clamoring for the Lord, and there's this demon-possessed boy who is there. Jesus, again, having spent time with the Father, comes down, and there, right before Him, is an opportunity for ministry. Again, as a disciple of Christ, we can go from spiritual times where God is we're just in the presence of the Lord and it's awesome, and we can turn right around and be confronted with an opportunity for ministry. And that's exactly what happens here. Now it says there that, look at this, this boy. This distraught father has this demonized son. And the word there, it says his only child. And in verse 38. And that word only child literally is his only begotten son. Now that's interesting, because Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. And the only begotten Son of God is going to minister to the only begotten Son of a man. And you know what? That's exactly what the Lord came to do. He came to die for us. The only begotten Son of God, holy, righteous, the Creator, came to minister to the only begotten Son of Man, sinful, separated, under the control of Satan. And that's a picture of each one of us. Note again what Satan does to this young man. Look at verse 38, um, 39. And behold, the Spirit seizes him, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. What does Satan do to those he has control over? He destroys them. You know, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost and to bring salvation to them, to save them. And Satan seeks to steal kill and destroy. And that's why it's so amazing to me that so many people are, are openly aligning themselves with the devil. It's amazing. I told you a few weeks ago I saw this kid with this devil shirt on. You know, and I went up and talked to him and go, what's up with that? Now help me out here. Why do you got the devil on your shirt? I mean, you know, would you wear a shirt of someone who, who murdered your whole family? Would you wear a shirt around with a picture on it? I mean, help me out. Why? Do you, and you know, have you seen these kids now? They're getting their hair, they're getting little horns put in their heads and stuff. Have you seen this? I mean, it's amazing. And they don't realize that his whole desire is to destroy them. Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundant, but Satan desires to destroy us. So verse 40, So I implored your apostles, this is the man speaking, I implored your apostles to cast it out, but they could not. Now remember in verse 1 of chapter 9, the Lord had given them authority over demons. He said, I'm going to give you authority to cast out the devil and to cure disease. 
And so this man shows up. They've been given authority by God to, to deliver this man from the devil. And when he shows up, they're unable to do it. Now, that doesn't make any sense. If the Lord gave them the power to do it, why couldn't they do it? Look at verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, O faithless and perverse generation, how, sh- how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Now, why is it that Jesus was able to heal him, and yet the apostles or the disciples were not? The Bible teaches very clearly that the calling of God is irrevocable. What does that mean? It means God doesn't give you a gift and then take it back. But while the calling is irrevocable, the effectiveness of that calling is not automatic. What makes our calling effective in Christ? Why is it that when this demon-possessed man came, that they could not cast him out, though Jesus did it with a word? Even though Jesus said, I give you a power and I give you authority to do this in my name, and yet they were still unable to do it. You know, some of you may be sitting here this morning, and God may have used you in the past, maybe in counseling or teaching or evangelism or helps or worship or whatever it might be. And you say, you know, that's my gift. And you know what? You're right. If there's a supernatural, there's fruit there and, and you're doing it, it's a, it's a get to and not a have to. There's a burden there. It's a joy to do it. But now all of a sudden, in that gift, there's no more fruit and there's no more power. What happened? If God's calling is irrevocable, why could they not cast out these demons? Let me tell you why. For it to remain effective, we must participate in maintaining the gift. The Bible says in Matthew 5, in speaking of this, or Matthew 17, in speaking of this account, it says, This kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. The gift comes from God, but the power and anointing for the gift comes from being in constant communion with the Lord. Amen? You may be gifted by God, but you can take that gift and put it on the shelf if you're not in constant communion with the Lord. The power comes from God. The anointing comes from God. And that only comes from spending time in His presence. If you've been gifted by the Lord and you feel like, man, this gift's just, it's, I'm not using it. It's, it's not effective anymore. You need to spend more time communing with the Father. Amen? He'll, he'll fire up that gift again. Because His calling is irrevocable. And you know what? That's the reason. And you know what? It may have been that these guys were even jealous. Because remember, that Peter, James, and John had gone up with the Lord. You know, Andrew and Matthew, oh man, I'm not praying. Are you praying? Jesus took those three guys again. We're sitting down here by ourselves. I'm not going to pray. You're gonna, no, I'm going to pray. I'm going to take a nap. You know what I mean? I mean, they're praying. They're not spending time communing with the Father. And then they wonder why when trouble comes, they're overwhelmed. And the same can be true in our lives. You know, that trouble comes and we're overwhelmed because we have not spent time with the Father. We're not tapping into the resource of Almighty God. We're not allowing Him to pour out His Spirit upon us to guide and lead and direct our lives. We're trying to do it ourselves and we wonder why we struggle. These guys tried to do it in their flesh and they failed. And Jesus came down, He spoke one word and delivered the man. And I love this. And I just I wrote down in here, prayer and fasting is the fuel for the gift. I wrote, no prayer, no power. We don't spend time in God's presence. We don't allow Him to minister through us. In verse 42, I love what it says there at the end of the verse. He said, He rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Even though the disciples failed, Jesus didn't. Amen? And even though men may fail you, Jesus never will. Amen? He'll never fail. He'll never fall short. He's God. He's always perfect. He's always right on time. That's why we don't turn to men. We turn to the Lord. And I think it's interesting also, it says there, that He restored the young man back to his father. And isn't that what Jesus did for every one of us in this room? When He suffered and died on the cross, He restored us back to fellowship with our Heavenly Father. He paid the price and He restored us and He took us back and put us back into the hands of our Father. And that's what we see Him here doing very clearly. So the true source of power, as we're talking about truth this morning, is constant communion with God. It's being and spending time in His presence. Let's talk about the truth about why Jesus came. Look at verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, He said to His disciples, Let these words seek down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Now, it's interesting that right after Jesus does a supernatural miracle that man was unable to do, that he turns to them and says, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer. You know why? When everyone else had tried to do this miracle and failed, when Jesus came and did it, what do you think the crowd's reaction would be? How do you think they'd react? Oh, Jesus. We want to make him king. We want you to be king. What kind of Messiah were the Jews looking for? One that would rule and reign on earth. One that would overthrow the Romans. One that would put them in places of authority. And the Lord turns to him and makes it very clear that I am not a conquering servant. I am a suffering servant. I did not come to overrule and overthrow the world. I came to suffer and die to restore man back to heaven. Our Savior did not come to give us temporal comfort, but to give us eternal life. Amen? And He's making it clear to them that that's why He came. He's a suffering Messiah, not a conquering one. And they did not understand His words. Why? They were still looking for an earthly kingdom. And we can see the proof of that in looking at the next verse. Because look what it says about these guys. And I, I want to say this. The truth about why Jesus came, He came to suffer and die. Not to make your life comfortable, but to give you eternal life. Now we're going to look at true greatness. And look what it says here. So, now Jesus had just been transformed before the, before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. He's come down. He's cast a demon out of this boy that nobody else could. And then He turns to His apostles and said He's going to be betrayed. And how do they respond? We can tell they're looking for a physical kingdom. Look what they do. Look at verse 46. Then a dispute among, arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Wait a minute. Didn't you guys just try to cast out the demon and you had no luck? You, were, it, you couldn't do it? Hey, Peter, James, and John, weren't you napping up on the Mount of Transfiguration? I mean, here these guys are, and they're saying, I'm going to be greater than you. No, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. Here, you know what it is? They think that Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and they're already picking out their position. You know, I want to be emperor over uh, Caesarea. That's what I want. I want to be second. I want to be seated at the right hand. I want, and they're striving for position. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. I can imagine that Peter, who's not shy, probably spoke up. And you know what? They disregarded Jesus' word about betrayal and they started fighting for position. And Peter could have said things like, you know, he called me Peter. Petros, small rock. He said, I'm going to chip off the old block. I'm, I'm the greatest. Hey, Mount of Transfiguration, I was there. Andrew, you weren't even, you were down here. And you guys couldn't even cast out, I'm, I'm going to be the greatest. And you know what? As men, even in the church, and women, even in the church, sometimes we try to strive for position rather than desiring to die to self that God might be glorified. These guys were missing it completely. Peter had answered the question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of believing that the gifts or the position or the accomplishments that we have somehow make us more special in the eyes of God. Any gift you have, God gave you. Amen? So who should be glorified? Him. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, well, you know, and I even see it. You know, uh, you'll talk to somebody and they'll talk about how great their ministry is. You know what? It's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with the Lord. Amen? We just walk in obedience and God does the work. And may He alone be glorified. And they're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving their heart, verse 40, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And said to them, Whoever receives this little one in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. True greatness in God's kingdom is not based on how many people serve you, but how many people you serve. In the world, it's how many people work for you. Right? I heard people say that. I got 40 people working for me. I got 50 people working for me. And that's a status symbol. But the Lord said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. It's based on humility, on self denial, and a joyful willingness to serve others. It says, if you, and it says, if you want to be first, the word is protost, he shall be last. And that's eschatos, where you get eschatology of all, and servant, that's where we get the word diakonos of all, which is where we get the word deacon. Deacon means servant. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Serve others. How do you have joy? Jesus, others, yourself. J-O-Y. Put Jesus first, others next, yourself last, you'll have joy. You start having yourself first and 
Others second, and Je- you've got Yoj, and that's not good. You want joy, amen? You want to have Jesus first. You want to know peace, you want to know joy, you need to walk with Him. Verse 49 and 50, now, Jesus ans- now John answered and said, Master, we've seen someone casting out demons in your name. We forbid him because he does not follow with us. Now that's interesting, because didn't they just try to cast out a demon and they failed? I think these guys were jealous. Lord, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but they weren't part of our church. So we told them, knock it off, right? I mean, you know, that's a sad thing in the body of Christ. How many churches are there? There's one. Amen? We may be meeting in a lot of different places, but there's one church, there's one God, there's one Savior. And so often, people are trying to compete with the other church. Oh, we've got to do that. And you know what? We should be praising God that there are people teaching God's Word in Santa Cruz County. Amen? And pray that there would be more. And praying on behalf of the pastors in this town. And not be, we're not competing with churches. It's ridiculous. We're all here to glorify and honor God. We're not trying to build up Calvary Chapel. We want to build up God's kingdom. Someone gets saved here and goes to another church, that pray, I, that's okay. Because it's not about establishing the kingdom of men, but establishing the kingdom of God. And these guys didn't get it. Well, we saw him, Lord, and he wasn't one of us. So we told him to knock it off. There was this demon-possessed guy, and he cast the demon out, and the guy was delivered. We told him, you stop doing that. I saw some guy down in the mall, and he was evangelizing and sharing his faith. And this poor guy was suffering and hurting. And they shared the Lord with him, and he, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And, you know, the guy was running and leaping and praising God, and we told him to stop it because he doesn't go to Calvary Chapel. It's ridiculous. They have a physical focus trying to build up a man-made kingdom, seeking to be the greatest on earth rather than focusing on glorifying and honoring the Lord. They missed it. Here we see an example of spiritual arrogance and jealousy. Apostles had been unable to cast out the demon. Jesus had just remarked about receiving a child in my name, and it may have hearkened John to say, oh yeah, I remember that guy who was speaking in Jesus' name, and he brings this thing up. We must be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking we are the only ones with the right and perfect doctrine. You know what? I guarantee it, that every single man, on the face, man, woman, and child on the face of this planet that has given their life to Jesus Christ, when we stand before God, He's going to have to illuminate a lot of stuff to us because we just did not fully get it. Amen? We're not going to stand before God and go, oh yeah, I knew everything. I knew all of it. Yeah, I had it all. Oh yeah, that's right. See, I told you guys I was right. That's not going to, we're going to be on our face and humble before God and we're going to be, He's going to illuminate to us the truth. Amen? And that's why, you know what? We need not to battle over secondary issues. There are certain things we should never compromise on. Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Only through Him can we be saved. He was born of a virgin, the sinless, perfect God. We don't compromise that. But when it comes to secondary issues, let's talk about what we have in common instead of battling over, what we, over the minors. Amen? The things that are non-essential for the faith. You know, I believe it grieves God that there's 9,000 churches with 9,000 different names meeting. You know, and praise the Lord that God can use them for His glory, but, well, we, you know, we believe in, in this position doctrinally, so we're going to start a new church. And we believe in that, and we're going to start a new church. And we believe... It's ridiculous. We need to be unified, not divided. There's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. We are either for Him or against Him. Look, it says, And Jesus said, Do not forbid Him, for He who is not against us is on our side. The man in question had two clear evidences that he was on their side. He did the works in Jesus' name, and he produced righteous fruit. This man is an example for us today. We should be blessed and not ashamed to be linked with Jesus' name. We should be producing righteous fruit. We're all on the same side. There's one Savior. There's one church. And everyone who's been born again and given their life to Him is a part of it. True greatness is esteeming others greater than ourselves and being unified in our service to the Lord. We're almost done. Verse 51. It says there, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of Samaritans to prepare the way. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Why? Why was he going? To be crucified. And along the way, he went through Samaria. Samaria was, were, was an intermixed race of Jews and non-Jews. And they had created their own religion where it took part of Judaism and part of the pagan religion. They had their own temple, their own religion, and their own belief. And when Jesus came through and they saw that His eyes and mind were focused on going to Jerusalem, they thought to themselves, you know what? We don't want anything to do with Him because He's headed to Jerusalem. You know what? May we never let our, our 
racial or national backgrounds keep us from fellowshipping with others. Amen? These guys were holding on to their racial background. You know, nothing nauseates me more than you know, white power groups and stuff like that that try to do things in the name of Jesus Christ, and yet they're prejudiced toward the very people that Jesus died for. That's nauseating. Amen? You know what? I'm not a Scottish-American Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to have, have Scottish background, who happens to live in the United States, but I'm of Jesus Christ above all else. Amen? And I have more in common with a Russian person who knows God than I do with my next-door neighbor who doesn't. We're all of one kingdom. And the Samaritans missed him because of their selfish pride and their, their nationalistic pride. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now here's James and John. They're called the sons of thunder, and there's a reason for it. Ready, fire, aim again, right? Hey, you know what, Lord? They're not paying attention. Let's call fire and smoke them all. Let's get them, Lord. Come on. Call, can, we, can we call fire down? I mean, can you imagine? Now, here's the thing, guys. When we see people denying the Lord, I know that part of my natural reaction is, when I, especially when I see people blaspheming God, how many of you have ever thought in your mind, Lord, smoke them? <laughs> Tell the truth. Raise your hand. And I know I'm not the only one. Come on now. Stop it. You know, pe- you know people are blaspheming the Lord, and you're like, Lord, smoke them. Just, just wipe them out. Just take care of them. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do. The Lord doesn't want us to call fire down from the sky. He wants us to pray that their hearts would be softened, that their eyes would be opened, that they might be born again. Amen? Not to repel them, but to reach out to them. Not to call smoke and fire down from the sky. And it says that's what these guys wanted to do. And He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You know what He's saying to them? You don't know what spirit you're speaking by because right now you're speaking of the spirit of the devil. Who wants to destroy? Satan. And what are they calling for? Destruction. Lord, smoke them all. Call the fire down. Let's do it. Let's go. I'm going to get a good seat. Do it. Oh, yeah, it'll be good. Big Samaritan fire. Be great. The Lord says, pray for them. Minister to them. Love them. You don't understand. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're saying. Why? Because your spirit and your heart is in the wrong place. Jesus Christ did not come to, to steal, kill, and destroy, but to seek and save that which was lost. Interesting note, though, is that this very same John who wanted to call fire down from the sky, this is John before Pentecost. Do you know what happened to him after Pentecost? After he was filled with the Spirit of the living God? you know what happened to John? He went back into Samaria and he preached the Gospel and he led people to Jesus Christ. So the good news is that you know, those who call fire down from the sky and her, who are wrong and, and of the spirit of the devil in a sense of wanting to judge the world, when touched by God, can still be used by God to minister to the truth. And praise the Lord for that. Amen? So if you're still breathing in and out, it's not too late. God can still use you. Amen? And that's what happened with John. He was touched by God. He was a different man. I know I've gone over. I want to finish up. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And lastly, the cost of discipleship. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what's the true cost of discipleship? It's saying, and and I, I wrote down this quote, The happy man is not the one who has the most, but is the one who needs the least. You know, when you're walking with the Lord, you don't need much. Because Jesus plus nothing else equals peace. Amen? I don't have to have the biggest house on the hill. I don't have to... And again, if you have stuff, doesn't mean you're out of God's will. But it's as long as you possess your stuff and not your stuff possessing you. Amen? And he says to this man, follow me. And the Lord says to him, okay, put aside all your material stuff and come and follow me. The number one obstacle, I believe... For many Christians, following God with their whole heart is materialism. It's our pursuit of stuff. This is where I'm going to find my joy. I've got to have the house. I've got to have this. And I call it golden handcuffs because that's what it becomes. We become so handcuffed to our stuff that we can't be used for the kingdom. We've got to work extra hours to pay the mortgage so we can't do ministry. You know, come on down. We have an opportunity for you to go. Oh, I can't. I've got to work extra hours. My mortgage payment's so high. I'm spending all my time, you know, spending time on stuff, I, on stuff that's going to perish. Spending money I don't have to buy things I don't need to impress people I don't know. Amen? And that's what we do. And it's the material obstacles. Career pursuit, pursuit of wealth, personal comfort. You cannot serve God and mammon. And too often as Christians are useless in the kingdom is crumpled by our desire for the things of the physical. No time or desire to minister to others. Verse 59. Second obstacle is family. 
Then he said to another, follow me. But he said to him, Lord, let me go and first bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Wow, Jesus is being harsh. You mean his dad, this guy's dad's dead and he won't even let him go home and have a few? That's not what it means. This guy's dad was not dead and wasn't planning on being dead anytime soon. What he's saying is, hey, you know, Lord, I want to follow you, but I want to go home and hang out with my dad. And when he dies 10 or 15 years from now and I bury him, then I'll come follow you. And you know what? We often do that with our, our relationship with the Lord. We, when my kids all graduate, then I'll come serve you because I'll have more time. You know, when, when I get you know, to, to my retirement, then I'll have more time and then I can serve you, Lord. Now, the Bible tells us that our first ministry is our family. But I want to say this. We don't honor our family above the Lord. Amen? You want to minister to your family? Honor God first and God will minister to your children. And then lastly, in verse 61 and 62... And another said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are in my house. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Another obstacle is reminiscing about the past. It's looking back. I hear Christians do it. Oh, I remember when. Oh, I want to go back and do that again. Oh, I remember how things used to be. Pastor Chuck talks about a movement becoming a memorial. A movement of God becoming a memorial because we're always looking back instead of looking ahead. Don't look back. Look forward. Be faithful right where you are. Don't say, well, God used to do, and here's what God did before. Say, what's God doing now, and how does He want to use me today? Amen? What is God looking for from us? He's looking for total devotion. If the worship team would come back up. Not a sometime faith, or a second place faith, behind material pursuits, family obligations, or earthly friendships. Not a reminiscing faith, always looking back at things behind us, but total devotion, putting Christ first, serving Him now, right where we are. Let me close this verse. It says in Philippians chapter 3, This one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So what do we look at this morning? The truth about the kingdom of God. What is it? It's revealing God's glory through His suffering. The true source of power is constant communion with the Lord through prayer. The truth about why Jesus came, to suffer and die, that we might have eternal life, not to give us temporal comfort. The truth about greatness, it's being the servant of all. We saw the truth about the world's rejection of truth. Instead of calling down judgment, we should be praying for repentance. And lastly, the truth and the true cost of following Jesus is putting our relationship with Christ above material possessions and pursuits, above family obligations, above earthly friendships, looking only unto Jesus. Amen? That's what total devotion is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and I just thank You for the, the patience of those who are here, and I just pray, Lord, that Your Word would just reach down and touch our hearts. Transform us to Your image, Lord. And may, may we know the truth, that You are the way and the truth and the life. So, Lord, we love You. We praise you, we worship and honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close in worship song.